All right, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'd like to, first of all, again, say my um, warm greetings to everybody from North Carolina. Uh, I'm actually very delighted uh, to be here today for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that it's been a while uh, since I had the opportunity to fellowship with my uh, English brethren. Uh, and also my uh, brother-in-law is gonna be uh, surrendering his life to Christ today. Uh, through baptism. So it's also another uh, point of rejoicing and to see that Jesus is still moving uh, in the lives of people around us and our family members. And so if you're praying for someone, just want to encourage you that God is able to move and to make it happen and to continue to stay on your knees and to trust Jesus um, as you pray for that. Um, this morning, I wanted to speak to you all about something that I found in recent times to be coming up quite a bit in conversations that I've had with youth over the years. And um, with that focus today, I want to speak to an experience more than to an intellectual idea. It will involve obviously reasoning from the word of God, but I wanna to speak to a particular experience that I find that drives and really defines the way that we look at our walk with Christ and how we can actually improve that uh, by the grace of God, by going back to his word and correctly understanding and assessing how to really view that experience. So if you'll bow your heads with me, we'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, we are so privileged that we have the technology that brings us together. We're so privileged, Lord, to be able to know you and to be able to trust a God that is able in the midst of a plague to promise us Lord, that a thousand may fall at our side and 10,000 at our right hand, but it shall not come near us because we have made the most high our refuge and the God of the Bible, our dwelling place. Lord, this is a day that we pause to acknowledge you as our creator, but also Lord, to walk in your example of resting on the seventh day. And so Lord, we invite your sweet, sweet spirit to be with every person wherever they are tuning in on this program to move in their hearts, Lord, and to guide us into all truth. Pray that you would use this man who is nothing before you and Father, that you may speak through me and you may speak to me, that Christ may be glorified and that we may love him more as a result. Is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna start off with a some famous quotes by a man that though many of us may not necessarily know a lot about individually, um, but who is a person who has influenced the 20th century and the 21st century in some significant ways, right? The father of analytical psychology, Carl Jung. And Carl Jung was being interviewed about why is it important to analyze the human mind? Why is it important to analyze a human being? And he is quoted as saying two different things. The first thing that he said was, he says, the world will ask you who you are. And if you don't know, they will tell you who you are. So he was first acknowledging the fact that the human mind is always on a quest of identity to understand itself. But he says, if you don't know who you are, and the world is going to ask you who you are, if you don't know, the world's going to tell you who you are. Just to keep in mind, he is the person that led to the development of personality types. And this concept of, you know, INTJs and all these personality tests that people like to take in order to find self-discovery 
is a very expression of the reality of what he was saying. But a second thing that he said was, he said, we also need to understand human nature. And the reason why we need to understand human nature is because he says, human beings are the ones that pose the only real danger to us. He says, humanity is the great danger and we are pitifully unaware of it. He says his psyche should be studied because he is the origin of all coming evil in the world, end quote. This commitment that Carl Jung had not only committed in his own life, but inspired others to say, we need to study humanity to understand how the human mind works and how he makes choices that we may be able to anticipate, prepare, and maybe even avert the coming evils that are going to emerge from him. He really causes us to pause and to really sit back and ask ourselves a very critical question about human beings. And that is how can a being so capable of love and compassion and creativity and empathy and selflessness and generosity also be so prone to evil such as genocide, human trafficking, pedophilia, political corruption and racism? You see, so many times we look at these things, and Carl Jung's point is that we have to stop looking at the fruits of what comes from human nature. This is essentially the progeny, but it's not its ancestry, the very origin of evil in the human heart. And of course, it's very easy for us as a Christian to say, well, that's just because of sin. Well, that's just because of the fall of humanity, and his nature is corrupt. But at the end of the day, we recognize that sin doesn't just express itself the way that your teeth grow or the way that your face changes as you mature. But we also realize that sin has an origin according to the word of God. And the origin of that is in something that we like to call temptation. And so um, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And I want to start giving and providing some insight to what James deals with in this concept of temptation. In James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Now, we, are, we obviously know how the chapter starts, but this is what he says in terms of defining elements about temptation. Notice what we can observe, starting in verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, the New King James, or tried in the King James Version, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, I want to make some observations very curiously about temptation in this verse. The first observation is the fact that the Bible says this temptation is to be endured. So many times when we think about temptation, we think about resisting temptation or fighting temptation or not submitting to temptation. But the Bible says that blessed is the man not who resists temptation, not who overcomes temptation necessarily, not who is fighting or struggling. It says blessed is the man who endures, right? The Greek word there, hupomeno, which means to bear under the weight of something, just to endure it. It is the same word that talks about in Hebrews chapter 12, let us run the race with patience putting aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. It's the same word. It's to run bearing these things. And obviously a race is designed for endurance. 
it's a marathon because that's the Greek word. So in, in this idea, temptation is a marathon. Temptation is a waiting game. And he goes to say, blessed is the man who endures temptation. And then it says, for when he has been tested, when he has been approved, this concept in Greek is the idea that back in those days, because they used metal coins, people would sometimes use metal that was a composite version of gold, but a little bit of copper and a little bit of silver so that it didn't cost as much, right? So if it was a pure gold coin, they would actually be able to weigh it. And so people would travel with these weighing machines and saying, if this was actual gold that you're giving to me, I'm going to put real gold coins on one side of the scale, and I'm going to put your coins. And if there's an imbalance, if it's heavier, I know it's not gold. And if it's lighter, I know that it's not gold. And so it was a way to validate, is this the authentic thing that we're dealing with? And the Apostle James is saying, temptation is putting us on the scale. But the question is, what is on the other side of the scale? What are the authentic gold coins that we are being weighed against, right? Using that terminology about Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5, where the Bible says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. The authentic has weighed more than you. You're not actually the appropriate balance. You're not the authentic article. And he says, when he has been approved, this is the valid thing. We're going to come to that in a minute. He says, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So let's follow it here, right? So temptation is something that is to be endured according to the word of God. This is not about fighting. This is not about resisting. This is about endurance. This is about a marathon. This is about a race. And then he says, when, you, when you're going through this point, the whole point of this endurance, this marathon spiritually that you're going through with this evil that you're trying to resist in your own heart, he says, you're going to receive a crown of life, a sense of victory, almost like the Olympics. You finished this race, right? You've endured. Now you're going to receive this crown of life, he says. And then he goes on to say, who is this crown of life given to? Those who endured? No, he says, a crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So right here and there, James is connecting the love of God to the endurance of temptation. And therefore, what is being validated is the love of God. Here's the genuine love of God on one side of the scale. And when you go through temptation or trials or issues in your life, and your faith is being tested according to James chapter 1 and verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials. Why? In verse 3, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience. The word is endurance. So he says here, the testing of your faith, your trust in God, is about the love of God. People resist or endure temptation because they love him. When we think back to the story of Joseph, and the Bible says that Potiphar's wife was trying to get him to lay with her, right? And in this experience, if you're not reading the text carefully, you may miss a subtle detail that is mentioned. And that detail is that she came to him day after day after day. She didn't just ask one time. When we look in Luke's version of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, Luke tells us that the devil tempted him 
40 days. And then he came to the temptations that we read in scripture. So it wasn't just one day and a couple moments. This was 40 days of trying him. Again, a test of endurance. So now when we look at the fact that enduring temptation is about putting us on the scale of authentic love for Christ and do we have that same love? And he says, God has promised his crown to those who love him. How do we know who loves him? Those who endure temptation is essentially what James says. It is their love that is verified of Jesus. Now, this is interesting because now we need to get a little bit more understanding about temptation. So if I love God, I'm going to trust him in my trials. If I love God, I'm going to resist the temptation to pursue some evil in my heart. And let's see what James adds greater detail to this to explain why I said at the beginning, when we look at the evil that humanity commits in genocide and human trafficking, corruption and racism, we have to go back to the origin, not the progeny. Let me explain what I mean by that in the word of God. The Bible tells us, beginning in verse 14, and actually verse 13 clarifies something that's a very important point. Just because we're being validated of when we, of, do we actually love God, doesn't mean God is actually doing the testing. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. But when you're dealing with a temptation, when you're dealing with a trial, when you're dealing with a difficulty, he says, don't let anyone say, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil himself, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So he didn't tempt Lucifer in heaven. He didn't tempt Adam and Eve. And we look at it and say, well, God placed this tree in the garden. No, 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 no. He's going to explain what the temptation is in a minute. He says, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. The word drawn away literally means he's being enchanted, led, led away, deviated from the original path he was walking. So temptation is about, I'm walking with Jesus. I'm walking on the narrow way. I'm marching to Zion. And as I'm walking on this path, all of a sudden there's a desire in my heart, and I have to choose between the path that I'm walking with Jesus and the desire that is telling me, in order to get that thing, you got to go this way. But this is the narrow way. So in that struggle, he says, everyone is tempted. This is when the temptation comes. It's when I'm drawn away of my own desire. It is my desire that produces the temptation at all, which tells us that temptation goes away when my desires are in alignment with the narrow way. When my desires are in alignment with the desires of God, there is no temptation. When I want to keep the Sabbath, when I desire to glorify God, there is no temptation. This is why the Bible says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself because his desire was in harmony with the will of God. Therefore, there was no temptation. When the Hebrew boys were standing there before Nebuchadnezzar saying, well, guess what? I'll give you another chance. Bow down to the statue. I won't put you in the fiery furnace. They said, look, we don't need any time to deliberate about this decision. We are not careful to answer you in this matter. We don't need time to think about what we want to say. Our desire is to not bow down to this image. And therefore, because it is not in harmony with your desire, but it is in harmony with the desire of God, it is not a temptation for us. We don't need time to think about it. We don't need time to deliberate or to consider. 
He says, everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desire. The word enticed means to be trapped in Greek. It's the literal, it's the literal idea of going to the woods, right? And seeing that, oh, there's this honey that bears love and it's sitting in a bear trap. So what led the bear into the trap? Not the trap itself. It was the honey that led the bear into the trap. And the apostle James is trying to help us understand how did we end up in the trap, the guilt, the shame, the pain, the aftermath, being stuck in a slave of this thing. He says it was our desire. So he holds out something that we want. He holds out a forbidden desire, something that God told us we should not have, something that is forbidden to, for us to consume. He holds that out. But in that is a trap. That's how we got enticed. So when we talk about James chapter 1 and verse 12, blessed is the man that endures temptation. What is he enduring? The marathon is dealing with his own desire. But let's even get a little bit further clarification. He says then. So now he has his own desire. He's drawn away. From the path of where he was. He's drawn away from the relationship that he's currently in. And it says now when he's drawn away and he's enticed. It says then verse 15. When desire has conceived. That means the literal word is what it talked about when Mary conceived. When, John, when Elizabeth conceived John the Baptist. It's using pregnant language. So it says when we're dealing with temptation. And our desire draws us away. There's a conception. And the conception of this desire, the conception of pursuing this desire is like becoming pregnant. And it says, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So by the time we get to the sin, it was literally the delivery. This is when literally when we're in the temptation and we feel that pressure to pursue something we know is wrong. Paul says, you just spiritually went into labor, right? You're basically feeling the contractions. You want to bring forth sin. You're going to now pursue this desire, and that desire is going to lead you to break the commandments of God. It's going to lead you to transgress the will of your heavenly Father. It's going to lead you to choose, do how much do I love God? And am I willing to surrender my desire out of a love for Christ? Is the fundamental question. And then he says, sin, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. This is the result. So there's this issue of maturity of sin. This is an issue of sin is progressing to a certain level that if I keep having this desire and this desire, I'm allowing this desire to stay here. And this goes back to James's point in the very beginning. He says, the man who endures temptation, why is he going to endure being drawn away by his own desire? Because he loves Christ. So this, this lust that brings forth sin, this pregnancy idea and sin becoming mature. So he says, even when you sin, you don't have to lead to death if you don't allow the sin to mature. It's like sin is now a child and you're just letting this thing grow up. So as we persist in sin, as we continue to commit sin after sin, the same sin over and over and over and over again, right? And we're not dealing with this particular entity, right, in our lives, this thing is going to eventually mature and bring forth death. Essentially, it's like raising a child that's going to take your life. But when we go back to what is this man enduring that is blessed, who is loving God, who's being placed upon the scales to see the genuineness 
of what? The genuineness of his love of Christ. Now, I'm going I'm to get very practical here in a minute, but let me just crystallize what we have been talking about so far. Being drawn away of our own desires and denying it and refusing that desire. So I have a desire. I have something that I want. And it is re denying that desire and refusing that desire. That is the endurance, right? And I'm refusing and denying this. I'm enduring the fact that I'm having this desire, but I'm not going to get it fulfilled. And as one author says, desire is a contract with myself that I will not be happy until I obtain this particular thing, this idea in a minute. Desire is a contract with myself that I will not be happy until I obtain this thing. So when I'm drawn away desire and I'm refusing it, I'm resisting it, I'm enduring not having this desire fulfilled, why? Not because I don't want it, but because I love Jesus. Now, let me just get very practical here. I remember, you know, early on in my um, marriage, you know, we, we have these date nights and we each take turns, right? Who's going to plan date night? And I remember, you know, one of the nights I, it was my turn to plan date night. And so I thought, okay, we're going to have this great meal, right? I'm going to cook this meal. Meal was great. And then I was like, hey, babe, let's just play a game. And growing up in the Marine Corps, I used to play the game Risk. Right, which is basically a game about conquering the world and armies and rolling dice. And yeah, you know, I just conquered your territory. And then eventually you take up the whole board and you took over the world and you win the game. So I'm playing this game with my wife. We're sitting and we set up the board, right? She's got her armies, her pieces, right? And I'm just going on this game and I'm going crazy, right? I'm just like rolling. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to attack Australia. I'm going to attack this place, right? And my wife basically had like one little country somewhere in like Africa, right? And she's there and I'm all over this whole map. And I'm like, you know, Drawing this thing, I'm like, all right, I'm going to move 50 armies here. I'm going to attack you, right, to break down your armies. And I remember in the middle of this game, right, my, my, my wife is like, I hate this game, right? This is like the worst date night ever, right? Led to an argument and a problem, right? And of course, your wife is like, why are you trying to dominate me in this game, right? Your whole, like, demeanor is changing. And so, you know, that wasn't really a great date night. I wouldn't recommend playing Risk, right, <laughs> unless your significant other is into that kind of stuff. But here's my point. Years later, right, that game sat on my shelf for years. I never asked my wife to play that game again. Never, ever. Because I knew, right, based on this experience, my wife hates this game. She does not want to play. She'll play any other game except Risk. So one night, right, this is a couple years ago, um, or last year during the pandemic, sorry, my, we're talking about date night, and obviously it's pandemic, so you can't go out to eat. You can't, you know, go do things out on the town. And so she says, babe, you want to play risk. And I'm like, you know, I'm about to fall out of my chair. I'm in complete shock. I'm like, did she just ask me that she wants to play? I'm like, babe, you hate that game. Why would you want to play risk? And she says to me, she says, because I know you like to play the game. Yeah, I don't like the game, but I know that you like the game. So therefore, I'm willing to do something that I don't want to do out of love for you. Now, I, I want to unpack this idea because this is exactly what James is trying to highlight, is the fact that there's, this is not an intellectual argument. Let me just tell you that this is exactly what James 1 verse 12 is trying to describe to us on a double-sided coin. The genuineness of my wife's love for me 
is not her doing the things that she desires to do naturally. The, the genuineness of my wife's love for me is that she's willing to do something she doesn't want to do, or she's willing to deny or refuse something she does want to do simply out of love for me. So typically in relationships, we'll say, if you do something and you don't really want to do it, we're like, well, nah, if you don't really like that, if you don't really want to do it, don't do it. You know, I, I want you to be happy. I want you to be da 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 da. But see, what we don't realize is that is the genuineness of love. So I want you to follow me for a second. If a person does the things that you want them to do because they want to do it anyway, is that really genuinely love? Let me just tell you something. The bank wants you to put your money in the bank and you want to put your money in the bank. So the bank doesn't hold your money and give you interest on your money because the bank loves you. The bank says, I'm going to do that because I want to do that because I want to make money. This isn't about love for you. When you go to Apple, Apple doesn't sell you an iPhone and an iPad simply because they love you. Oh, we love you. We want to give you this device. No, they want to make money. And you want an iPhone, they want to sell you an iPhone. So it is the harmony of these desires that leads to the transaction. But it is not the harmony of these desires that expresses and tests genuine love. And James is saying this is the exact same thing in our experience with Jesus. It is the conflict of our desires that totally proves the genuineness, authenticity of the love that we have for Christ. Is when the love for Christ crosses with my desire, when it crosses with what I want, when it crosses with something in me that is different from God, that didn't come from Jesus. What am I going to do with this thing? So what this tells us is, is that when you and I are grappling with crossing the, those boundaries with our girlfriend or our boyfriend physically, going places in a relationship before love is appropriately pursued and expressed in that particular way biblically, we're not doing it because someone convinced us in a book, I kissed ga dating goodbye, or because I went to you know, a pastor seminar about relationships and boundaries and I read statistics about those who engage in premarital sex are more likely to be divorced. All those statistics, all that information, all that biblical breakdown isn't going to keep someone when they're alone with their girlfriend or boyfriend in an apartment. Nobody knows. That's not going to keep you. What's going to keep us is our love for Jesus. At the end of the day, there is no argument. There is no statistics I could tell my wife that's going to make her love risk. I can't just be like, well, babe, look at this. Marriages who play risk, they actually have better marital satisfaction. Or uh, couples that play risk, they typically have a lot more engagement. And uh, this produces a better communication. Like, all of those details are not going to convince my wife to love this game or to want to play it. The only reason she's going to open that game and sit down and play is because of her love for me. So when you and I sit down and think about our Christian experience right now, we're so busy trying to argue about different issues of things that we want. Show me why this music is bad. Show me why it's wrong to watch this type of content. Show me why it's wrong to engage in, you know, kissing and making out before you're married and anything. like What, what is really wrong with this? Show me from the Bible. Show me from the spirit of prophecy. How do you know that this is wrong to do on the Sabbath? Why is it that I shouldn't be dressing this way? On and on and on. We're, we're sitting here engaging in intellectual debate when the reality is we have a desire. There is no intellectual information that's going to change your desire. So then what are we supposed to do? James says this is what you're supposed to do. 
You're supposed to sit down and tell yourself, I'm not going to cross those physical boundaries with my girlfriend, not because I don't want to, but because I love Jesus. I'm not going to wear those provocative clothes, not because I don't want to, but because I love Jesus. I'm not going, I'm going to let go of these video games, not because I want to, but because I love Jesus. I'm going to put down football. I'm going to put down these activities on the Sabbath, not because I want to, but because I love Jesus. I'm going to turn on certain types of media, not because I don't want to, but because I love Jesus. I'm not going to turn on the pornography. I'm not going to pursue these websites. I'm not going to get into these illicit dating relationships and online uh, communications that I know are inappropriate, not because I don't want to, but because I love Jesus. We don't have to deny. We don't have to pretend like we don't want something. It is actually the ownership of what you desire that proves the genuineness of your love when you say, yes, I want it, but I love Jesus more than what I want. And I'm going to let that go. This is exactly what Jesus was going through on the cross. When Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that, oh, yes, we should run this race with patience by casting our, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Jesus did not go to the cross because he wanted to. We know in Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was going to the table to say, I don't want to play risk. But because I love you, Olivia, because I love you, Sebastian, because I love you, NEC youth, I am willing to sit down at the table and play risk. I'm willing to sit down and allow myself to be crucified, knowing I could call legions of angels to stop the very thing I don't want to happen. Why would I do that? To prove the genuineness of my love. The Bible says he endured the cross. You don't endure something that you enjoy. You don't endure something you desire. I've never sat down and said, oh, I love vegan chocolate ice cream. Let me endure this ice cream cone. I didn't endure the ice cream cone. The, the reality is the ice cream cone endured my desire as long as it possibly could. So when we look at the, 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 the enduring of the cross, the cross was not what he wanted. What he wanted was for you and me to be in heaven. What he wanted was for you and me to be free from sin. What he wanted was for you and I to break free from shame and brokenness in our own experience. And he says, I love you more than what I don't want to happen to myself. But also in Gethsemane, he also reveals the opposite to us. It's not just that I am denying myself a desire that I don't want, because notice what I said with the risk. It wasn't about denying a desire. It was about pursuing something I didn't want. So we can also reason the opposite. See, I'm going to pursue this thing, not because I desire it, but because I love Jesus. And this is the experience I really want to speak to. So many times as young people, we have experiences where we don't want to study the Bible. And we think there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our devotional experience because we're not excited to study the word of God in the morning. Because we're not excited to kneel down and pray for 30 minutes. We say, what's wrong with me? And then they come and they say, you know, Brother Sebastian, I, I, I really want to study. You know, I know I should study the Bible. I know I should pray. I know I should do evangelism, but I don't want to. And I feel like I'm being a hypocrite by pursuing this very thing that I don't want to do. Well, let's go on outreach. Okay, well, let me go to this other church service and 
you know, I go and show up to the service and the pastor's preaching and this thing is dry foot. So it's like, huh, why am I even logging into this Zoom meeting? Why am I even going to this thing? I'm bored out of my mind. Why would I read the Bible? I don't even understand. I don't even get anything out of it. And in that very moment, I have to sit down with the young person and show them from James chapter one, the reality of the fact that this is what proves the authenticity of your love for Christ. That is proof that you love God. Not that you desire to study the Bible, because when your desire is in harmony, everything is great. But the question of love is authenticity. It's proved. It's validated. It's the genuine article. It's when you don't want to study the Bible and you show up anyway. It's when you don't want to pray and you show up anyway. When you and I come to shift our mindset to say, today, I really don't want to have devotion. Today, I really don't want to pray. Today, I really don't want to read my Bible. You get that Bible. You go into your corner. You go into your closet. You kneel down in the presence of Jesus and you tell Jesus, I don't want to be here. I don't really feel like doing this, but because I love you, I'm going to come. Lord, I really don't want to pray. And I'm going to come into my prayer closet. I'm going to kneel down in your presence, not because I want to, not because I feel like it, but because I love you. Because Jesus has done enough to show us he loves us. And guess what? He is done what you are struggling with right now when he died on the cross. When he was in Gethsemane sweating great drops of blood, and he was saying to himself, if there's any other way, let it be that way. But Christ said, listen, Sebastian, I don't want to go through this. I do not desire to not see my father's face. I do not desire to feel what it's like to not have God watching over me. I do, not like the, I do not desire to feel what it's like to be completely under the power and the clutches of the devil and his evil imps. I do not like the desire to be giving over to the will of people who are corrupt and selfish and jealous. That is not what I desire. But because I love you, I'm going to allow myself to pass through this. Jesus has done it. This is what it means to take up your cross. This is what it means to follow him is to go into that room and read the Bible anyway because you love him. And the Bible says you are blessed if you do that. You are approved if you do that. Your love for Jesus is genuine. So stop trying to look for new books. Stop trying to look for new arguments to get us to stop doing the things we know Jesus does not want us to do. Because it's our desire. It's not the Lord's desire. It's our desire. And by saying to this, I don't need people to give me seminars on dress reform. I know this is not what the Lord wants, and I know in my heart this is just what I want. But you know what, Lord? Because I love you. End of discussion. And the temptation is going to be like Potiphar's wife, day after day after day after day, and therefore it is not a swift race. This is not a sprint. Blessed is the man, the woman, who endures temptation. You got to run the race you got to be able to bear it with patience. You know, I remember talking to a couple. They were telling me, um, you know, we were talking as parents with kids and the struggles that come with parenting. And they were saying, you know, we struggled for so many years in our marriage, over 10 years of marriage. They tried to have a child and they could not have it. And their friends were having kids and 
Sebastian's popping out four kids, right? Sebastian can't stop having kids. Right? <laughs> this is what they're like. You know, Sebastian's having another one and another one and another one. It's like, man, you know, we're trying to have children. Sebastian's like, yeah, that fourth one, uh, we weren't intending to have four, but it just happened, right? The Lord just blessed us, right? He opened up the windows of heaven, poured us out of blessing, we have room to receive. So they're sitting here on the, on the sidelines saying, as me and my wife are dumbstruck, like, oh, man, baby, number four, Lord, this is not what we were trying to do. And they're saying on the opposite, Lord, we're praying and agonizing for a child. And finally, the day came where they got pregnant. And they were worried, right? And they wanted to make sure, right? Every step in this pregnancy, they were overly cautious, overly careful. And when the baby came out, the very things that I would complain about as a parent and saying, oh, man, I got to change these nappies and, like, they're stinky everywhere, right? This kid is up and everything, throwing up all over everything, can't eat this, can't eat that, the baby won't sleep. All these things that I looked at as a burden, as something that weighed upon my mind as I'm dealing with baby number three, baby number four. For them, this one child, they knew what it was like to not have a child. They knew what it was like to endure that time to say, I want to be a mama. I want to be a papa. I want to change nappies. I want to clean up, spit up all over the child. I want to have a bib. I want to teach them how to eat bananas properly. I want to teach them how to eat carrots properly. I want to make them eat their vegetables. I want to be able to correct them in love and pray with them and help them to surrender to what I'm asking them to do. These are all things that I have always wanted to have the experience, but I never had this before. And all of a sudden, now that they have it, they enjoy the very things that we who have had kids for a long time complained and struggled with because they never had it before. And as they were sharing this with me, I realized that before we came to Jesus, we were spiritually infertile. We were spiritually infertile. We were like this couple before we met Christ. Because as I saw the way that they dawdled over that child, the way that they focused and enjoyed every single moment, how much they loved that child, like Abraham and Sarah probably loved Isaac, the way they loved that child helped me to understand when we talk about resisting temptation because we love Jesus. Putting aside our desire, Pursuing what we don't desire because we love Jesus. And man, our lives, we were like infertile parents. We were infertile souls. Recognizing we never had a Christ before. Before you and I met Jesus, we were in idolatry. We were worshiping something else. And the reality is we never had a Christ before, a faithful friend. We've never had someone that was willing to be a constant support for us in the hills as well as in the valleys. We never had a, a person who loved us more than we loved ourselves. We never had a Christ before. And because we never had a Jesus before, we've never had a God like the God of the Bible before. You've had other gods, right? Whether you worship music or sports or relationships or money or your career, and realize those things have disappointed us and let us down. But see, when we had Jesus, 
never had a Jesus before. And that which others would consider to be a burden, like that couple, we enjoy every step of the process, even the hard work. We rejoice because we understand how unique this experience is for us. When you think about Jesus in this light, he says, I am God. There is none like me. Brothers and sisters, we've never had a Jesus before. And when you, when you have something that you've never had before, that you've always wanted, that you knew you always needed, and then you finally obtain it, you're going to love it. And that love is gonna be so strong that you're gonna be willing to put aside your own desires. You're not gonna allow yourself to be drawn away because you love Christ. This is the experience that I wanna to speak to. Understanding in our own nature Our willingness to surrender our love for Christ simply for a temporary desire that we know in the end is not going to satisfy us, is only inviting us to a room of shame and guilt. This is the encouragement of the Apostle James. He says, if you put aside this desire because you love Christ, you're blessed. It's not about getting rid of the desire. This is about enduring temptation. Proving that your love is genuine to Christ. Should have bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege of life. Lord, we thank you this morning for this particular service for the word of God that is designed not just to speak to our minds, but to speak to our hearts. And Lord, there is some soul right now under the sound of my voice that is struggling to desire to just spend time with Jesus, desiring just to pray. And in that struggle, <clears throat> they feel as if they're pretending, they're hypocrites, double-minded, by pursuing these actions, knowing that it's not in their heart to do it. But Lord, help disabuse us of the lie of the devil. That what we thought was not authentic love is actually authentic love for Christ. And Lord, to let go of our desire because we love the Lord, because we love Christ. Lord, may that be our reason May that be our impetus, just like Christ, through his own Gethsemane, through his own cross, because he loved us, because it was his joy to see us here right where we are right now, worshiping at peace in love with him and his word. Christ loved this moment, and it was his love for us that led him to endure what he endured. Lord, give us that same spirit. 
May we do unto God what God has already done unto us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.